Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Our guest today is Corinne McSherry. She is Intellectual Property Director with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Corinne, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So give us, if you would, a snapshot overview of you know, what has become a very thick issue, a very complex issue, the issue of net neutrality. Um, you know, what's going on and why is everybody uh, so interested? Sure. So, you know, this particular uh, battle is, has been a long time coming. And for several years now, the FCC has been trying to figure out how it can try to make sure that the Internet is really an open Internet and try to make sure that all traffic, basically traffic, travel across the Internet equally. Um, in a neutral way. That's why it's called net neutrality. Um, and how to make sure that service providers have to treat all Internet traffic equally as opposed to prioritizing some traffic and maybe slowing down some other Internet traffic, that sort of thing. And um, the reason it's sort of come to a head now is that the FCC issued some rules uh, actually several years ago that were designed to ensure net neutrality, but one service provider, Verizon, took the FCC to court, and what what the court said was that the FCC had overstepped its authority, that it wasn't allowed to regulate in the way that it was trying to regulate. And so that kind of set everybody back to the drawing table, and what we're seeing right now is the FCC has issued new rules and that it's, they're just in the proposed stage right now, so they're just in the drafting stage. And they've issued them, and they've asked the public to come in and talk about these proposed rules um, and whether you know, they would actually accomplish the goal or not. And, of course, lots of the service providers are not happy with these rules. They don't want to have to comply with them. Um, other people complain that the FCC is still overstepping its authority, and other people complain that these new rules are a bad idea in the first place. So it's a bit of a mess, frankly. Now, one of the things uh, people are talking about is this idea of a fast lane, or rather paid prioritization. So explain to us, what is paid prioritization and who pays? Right. Well, the, the, simple way, the simplest way to think about it is, so Netflix makes a deal with Comcast, say to make sure that when Netflix streams something out to its subscribers, that that stream um, gives gives priority over other traffic that that Comcast might also be carrying. And what the FCC is proposing is saying, look, we don't think we have the ability to forbid all such deals, but we do think that we have an authority to make sure that there's a sort of baseline for everybody. Um, some people worry that that would be the slow lane, but we all get access to the slow lane. Um, but Netflix, because Netflix has, has um, paid up, Netflix subscribers get access to a fast lane, at least for that kind of content. So there's an article by Al Tompkins in, on Pointer, 
And uh, I'll read you a paragraph here. He says, journalists have largely played net neutrality as a battle among three players. The Internet provider living data to your home or business. Consumer groups wanted to keep the providers from cutting deals with companies seeking a fast lane into your house. And businesses operating online and relying solely on the Internet for their survival. Amazon, for instance. But media companies have a huge stake in this battle, too. Talk to us about that and talk to us about um, you know, how some of these providers are also media companies. Right. This is a real concern that many, many people have, um, and the FCC has specifically talked about it as a problem, which is that, you know, more and more we've got close relationships between service providers um, and content providers. You can think of it that way. You know, and you can think of service providers as kind of just the conduits, right, the wires, the cable, um, they're providing the sort of the infrastructure. And then the content is supposed to travel on top of that. Well, but what if there is no difference between, say, Comcast and Netflix, right? What if they're closely related to each other? Well, then Comcast is going to have a lot of incentive to always prioritize Netflix um, content, for example. Um, or you can look at you know, the relationship between um, uh, Comcast and, and NBC Universal and say, oh, this is content um, that's sort of in-house. So let's make sure that whatever is produced there um, you know, moves along at a, good, at a good clip. And external sources, well, that's not like we're going to you know, block them, but maybe they're not going to be a big priority for us. There's a precedent for this. I think it was the 30s or the 40s when the motion picture studios owned most of the theatrical uh, exhibition houses. And they were actually forced to divest of those theaters. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, that's a, a very good comparison. And, you know, some people thought the sky was, would fall, and it turned out that it didn't. But it was precisely the same kind of problem is because the theaters um, – you know, only had so many hours that they could devote to, to showing movies to audiences. And, if they, and so, of course, they were going to put a priority on the movies um, from the folks that owned them. And so what would happen is that the theaters would be full, you know, a given theater would be full of MGM movies, for example, and Disney would, there'd be no room for Disney there. And so if you lived in that town and you didn't have a lot of different theaters. I mean, this is what exacerbates it. Um, you know, there was a time when you had lots and lots of movie theaters, but if you lived in a town where you only had one or two, well, then that would limit your access to, to those movies. And similarly, we have a situation here where, I mean, it's actually a good deal worse. Um, if, depending on where you live, you probably only have one service provider, maybe two, to choose from. And so what exacerbates all of this is that you're not able to vote with your feet. You're not able to say, okay, I don't like the deal that this service provider is making. There's this other one that I think is more fair and better for me. That's not an option for many people. So now, obviously, there is a whole you know, group of people who feel like this should go through. What's the argument in favor of uh, Wheeler's proposal? Well, so the argument in favor of Wheeler's proposal is, you know, that he has done his best to comply with what the court told him to do. The court told him that, or the, the court said to the FCC, you're not allowed to regulate these people like common carriers. You're not allowed because of some arcane legal issues, which we can get into if you want. But basically what the court said is you're allowed to regulate to try to protect competition. 
but you're not allowed to regulate in a way that requires these service providers to be common carriers because of some decisions the FCC made several years ago. And so he's tried, he's done his best to craft rules that will promote competition but not go over that legal line and actually treat all these service providers like common carriers. Um, which, uh, for that reason, there's a number of people that think that actually what needs to happen is the FCC needs to take a whole other approach and reverse some of its earlier decisions and so go ahead and treat these folks like common carriers. When we say common carrier, you might think of like, you know, the traditional like phone company that we all grew up with where it's like, okay, you know, it, common carrier phone companies had to treat all phone traffic equally. A lot of people think that the same should be true for broadband providers. So who is responsible for where we are today? Is it, I mean, can you lay a responsibility at the feet of Obama for the appointment of Wheeler? I mean, I mean if, if there was a witch hunt, who are the usual suspects that would get lined up? <laughs> well, it kind of depends on where you're sitting. A number of people think that the FCC is partly responsible because they made a mistake several years ago in, try, in deciding to treat broadband providers and information services as opposed to telecommunication services and therefore aren't allowed to do this common carrier approach that a lot of people think would make more sense. Um, other people might lay the blame at the feet of Comcast and you know some of the big broadband providers and say, look, you, you guys have basically created a monopoly and now you have some obligations that you need to meet. Um, some people might blame Wheeler and think that he hasn't gone far enough or taken the right approach with these rules. I mean, frankly, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. You could also blame the court <laughs> for, uh, for issuing the order that it did, although I don't think that the court was actually legally wrong. So does, does the FTC have a seat at the table in this discussion, seeing as how we're dealing with a potentially any competitive environment? Um, some people have made that argument that this is, would be, that it really this should be in the purview of the FTC, that if what we're worried about is consumers not being treated fairly, that smells like more like, and if we're worried about unfair competition, that that seems more like a Federal Trade Commission issue than uh, the Federal Communications Commission. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that we've got several years of this sort of sitting in the FCC's wheelhouse, and I don't see in a tremendous amount of appetite on the part of the FTC to pick this up. You know, you look at so many um, regulators in this country, in the U.S., who, you know, many might say have, have really failed the public interest. Mm -hmm. And then the argument comes out, well, why even let them try? They're just going to screw it up. They screw everything up. You look at Nipplegate and you look at all these other, you know, ridiculous decisions. And I mean, the fact that they classify the Internet as an information surface just seems so crazy. I mean, what, what's the response to those who say, look, you know what, even if the Internet should be open, putting that responsibility in the hands of the FCC is foolish because they're ineffective. Um, I, my response is, you know, good point. <laughs> it's, um, it's really tough. I think that the FCC does not have a particularly good track record in this regard. I mean, I think that um, it's, really, it's really a problem. It's, it, it's, you know, I think that what 
proponents of sort of strong FCC regulation will say is, well, you got a better idea? And, um, you know, and I think that there's some truth to that, that, you know, that unfortunately there don't seem to be a tremendous number of alternatives. But it is true that, you know, I think we have good reason to be uh, uncomfortable and suspicious about giving the FCC a tremendous amount of authority over something as basic as the Internet. Because, you know, the FCC just does not have a fantastic decision-making track record. Um, they just they have not earned... Um, our trust as much as we'd like. And, you know, there's a long history of regulatory capture. We know how it works. You know, industry insiders um, sort of effectively take over the, um, the regulatory agencies and for the most part manage to stave off any kind of regulation that they, that they don't like. Um, it's a real it's a real problem, and I think that anyone who thinks that there's sort of an easy solution that the FCC will just fix it all for us is, is really fooling themselves. Well, I mean, certainly all sorts of telecommunications are being provided on an Internet uh, backbone now, and um, we're seeing now, obviously, the publishing industry, the recorded music industry, television, all media being delivered online, and it seems like it, it makes perfect sense that you would classify it as a telecommunications service. What is What are the real barriers to reclassifying uh, the Internet from an information service to a, uh, a telecommunications service, what are the obstacles to making that happen, likelihood of that happening? Well, the obstacles um, are money. I mean, I, number one, right? I mean, I think that the, you know, the Comcast and the Verizons of this world would much prefer that things stay the way they are and that, you know, they don't want to be regulated as common carriers. They don't want the kinds of obligations that might come along with that. Um, and so I think that we can expect a very significant political battle um, to push back against the FCC uh, doing that. Um, so that's sort of obstacle, you know, that's a pretty strong obstacle. Now, I think in terms of the politics of it, I think if you had asked me three months ago whether that was remotely possible, I would have said no, and so would have a lot of other people. I think that the environment has changed somewhat. I think that we have a lot more people speaking up and talking about it and arguing for it. So, you know, it may be that we've got a more complicated political environment than we had a little while ago. So based on your experience now as, as a professional, as, as someone who is, you know, communicating about this and involved in this fight, from my view, as someone who you know, has an interest in an open inter Internet but isn't nearly as close with this issue as you are, I find that these thicker issues are really tough to get people behind because they take some sustained attention to appreciate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're dealing with such fleeting attention spans. What has your experience been with that? And have you learned anything at all about what it takes to capture and mobilize the public behind an issue like this? Well, I, I think that you are right. I think that um, Internet neutrality is a hard issue. It's actually gotten easier over time. I mean, I've, we've been working on this for several years now, and it's actually gotten a little bit easier over time as more and more people have become more and more conscious of how much they rely 
on the internet for so many basic services. So the, so that sort of change, that background has changed and has made it a little bit easier. I think that you're right. It's still sometimes challenging to mobilize the public around an issue like this because it's not simple. It just isn't. And, you know, and getting it so people sort of, you know, can process what's happening without being too simplistic is, is a challenge. But look, we, it's been done before and it can be done again. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to say to people is, like, look, it's your Internet. You know, you rely on it every single day, and it's going to be up to you to defend it because Comcast isn't going to do it for you, and the FCC is not going to do it for you, and the EFF isn't going to be able to do it for you all by ourselves. And the other thing, though, that is nice is that um, the Internet itself helps in the sense that we have so many tools now to mobilize people and to make it easy for them to act in a way that they couldn't before. So, you know, at EFF, we've developed tools to make it really easy for people to submit comments to the FCC online. Um, we've developed tools to make it easy for people to con- call their Congress people. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we can do now that we that we weren't able to do before to get folks mobilized and to get folks educated. So we're in this period now where um, the FCC chairman Tom Wheeler has mm-hmm. distributed uh, this proposal for uh, these fast lanes and this paid prioritization, and there's a public comment period. Is that right? Right. People have until July 15th to submit comments to the FCC. And what we're doing to sort of help facilitate that, and other groups are doing similar things, but basically the the proposed rules, there's a sort of short version of the proposed rules that are a little hard to read, and then there's a long version that's really hard to read. (laughs) I know because I read it this weekend. Um, And so we're going to try to break that down for people. Um, One of the things that we really try hard to do at EFS is to explain things without being simplistic, so simple but not simplistic. So we're working on um, a series of blog posts to help people get informed so that they can, you know, make really informed comments and sort of views with, with FCC. And from my perspective, even if you don't agree, you know, lots of different people may have different views about what should happen, but what's really important is the public go ahead and get in, engaged and get involved because, again, it's our Internet. We have to protect it. So now there's been a lot of discussion already about this prior to the release of the actual rules. Now you've read them. After reading them, what concerns you most? Well, what concerns me most is that there's a lot of vagueness in these proposed rules. So, for example, there's a reference, there's several references to commercial reasonableness. And what they will say is that um, you can make these deals, right, these kind of like pay-to-play deals and that sort of thing, prioritization deals. Uh, But they have to be commercially reasonable. Well, what's that going to be? Right? Lots of things might be reasonable, commercially reasonable from the perspective of the user, from the perspective of the service provider, from the perspective of Netflix or Amazon. You know, I'm very worried that as a practical matter, um, these terms are going to be so vague that we're all going to end up in, with, in, with so much uncertainty that we won't even know. Again, we've, we've gone to all this trouble to propose rules and no one really knows what the rules are. Any big surprises after reading them? Um, well, the one thing 
what I think many people thought was interesting is that, you know, there they was sort of a leak a few weeks ago and a description of what folks thought the rules were going to be. And I think that there has been some movement. Um, the final text is, I, I think, more consumer-friendly than the, than the leaked text was. Um, so, for example, with respect, to, again, to prioritization, um, the proposed rules say we're going to assume that such deals are unreasonable, but you can overcome that presumption. So that's a, a more consumer-friendly phrasing than I think we initially saw. And the other thing I think we've seen is a lot more movement, I mean, at least in the text, towards considering whether the right approach is to go ahead and do this reclassification process. And they're very interested in hearing from people about whether that's the right thing to do, basically because they want to avoid having yet another court battle. Now, they're going to have another court battle no matter what, but they want, a, they want one that oh, they want a battle that they think they can actually win. When I heard about you know some of the discussion and um, speculation that the rules had been leaked because they weren't publicly posted, you know my mind immediately went to this site, this conspiracy of oh my gosh they're so sophisticated and they're sort of feeling out the market and they're they're hedging their bets. I mean, is that what they do? Is that kind of a popular strategy? to kind of get a feel for how things will be received without having to actually um, put it out there? Well, you know, I do think that this is a time-honored thing for government officials to do <laughs> in various ways. I don't know for sure that that's what happened here, but I have to say that it does look, you know, it's very interesting to um, to have watched this play out in the way that they did, where they sort of, you know, sent out a balloon in a way and, uh, and, and sort of looked at that reaction. And from all reports, they changed their final product in response to that. So, you know, I don't know for sure that there was some sort of conspiracy, but the timing was pretty interesting. So you did see the initial rules that were put out, and you can compare those to the ones that are, were officially released Last week? Oh, no. No, no. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to be unclear. No, I've never seen – I did not see the original ones. Like everyone else, I just read all of the reports. Um, but, there, you know, the reports appeared to come from quite credible sources as to what the content was. So now if someone wants to get involved with this issue and they want to comment, how do they do it? How does somebody make themselves heard? So what you can do is you can go to dearfcc.org. And that's a website that we put together where that will help folks submit comments easily. You can also go directly to the FCC site, but we tried to sort of make it easy for people. So if you go to dearfcc.org, we have a process there whereby you can submit your comments. Um, and we'll also, as we, as we um, have more and more posts and commentary, we'll be um, adding it to the site so folks can get even more informed if they want to. Um, and, you know, I think that's always probably good to get as informed as you can when you submit your comments. So but we're trying to make it easy for people. So based on your experience um, working in, in, in the policy sector, what matters most? Do regulators take an email just as seriously as a phone call, as a letter, or is there some sort of a, sort of a ladder of influence there with respect to channel of communication? Well, 
you know, they, they're, in this particular context, they are specifically required to and are collecting public comments. And that's via an email. So that's in a sort of, that is built into the process, into this particular process. I think, though, that it is true that um, when people actually are motivated to not just email, but also go ahead and pick up the phone, um, that is almost always, you know, even more effective with regulators, Congress people, et cetera. Knowing that people are motivated enough to actually make a phone call is, um, is pretty important. Well, uh, Corrine, I want to thank you for taking the time to have this discussion with us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. I think it's such an important issue for people to get informed about. been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.